Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. The title of this podcast is not clickbait, so I think we first just need to get that out of the way. Um, so I mean, It's very attractive. Yes, yes. It, it draws lots of eyes, but uh, it's not simply clickbait. Also, we need to, um, I think, kind of solidify right now, we're going to be going over a lot of charts, data, mm -hmm. trends. We'll explain everything. But if you are on the podcast, you can go to YouTube to watch the podcast where you'll be able to see a lot more of what we're talking about, which mm -hmm. may help. Not that you're going to miss anything, but if you're a visual person, that'll help out a lot. It really will. Yeah, we've got a lot to cover today and uh, we got some good visual representation. So definitely uh, check it out here on the YouTube channel and uh, we can see what we're talking about. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Looking forward to diving into this, man. I know, AJ, you can be kind of opinionated sometimes in oh, regards to yeah. self-storage and other things. Well, and um, I, the Twitter world is, is very... Um, uh, sensitive. <laughs> and so you, you'd put out this tweet the other day, man, that uh, ended up just getting a ton of traction, uh, a lot of eyeballs and a lot of people talking. Um, so let's just dive into it, dude. Let's dive into it. Talk about uh, this point that you're trying to make and these different things that people need to be recognizing and looking at and, and these very important aspects of self-storage. Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, when I put out the uh, thread on Twitter, it was, we had been discussing a lot of things internally and we, we've gotten to a point in the cycle where I viewed, I, I didn't understand why people weren't having long forum or realistic discussions on risk. And even in our beloved industry, I was really confused on why it seemed like in other industries like multifamily, um, as well as others, there, there was a healthy amount of people coming out and giving good feedback on real potential dangers. But in self-storage, that really wasn't happening. And I, you know, I, I kind of, as I pointed out in, in the thread, I, I kind of thought at first maybe it was because, you know, uh, there's a lot of people in the industry that are selling courses or they just have other motives as trying to bring people into the industry. So it became more of a cheerleader, you know, kind of pump the industry up. Let's all make money, which I have no problem with. Obviously, you know, the podcast, I mean, we're big fans and we want everybody to get into the industry. Uh, but I thought that's why, like it, it wasn't in line with their incentives to talk about risk. Uh, mm. But I think really what I found out is over the last few months, having discussions with lots of people, it was more just because they don't know. Mm -hmm. Like they don't know and they don't see it. And when I started to wonder how this industry has gotten so big and how we could have such little discussion on actual risks, 
um, we started putting together this data and what I found, I believe, to be way more interesting than the actual data on why this discussion has been missing out in mainstream analysis of this industry for a long time. So let's dive into kind of, I think, first of all, we need to explain why this is occurring, what's happening, and really pinpoint where the risks are and how to structure deals that you can avoid it. For me, it, it, it's not that, you know, I guess now a lot of people are saying that I'm bearish on the industry, which I, I'm getting that criticism now, which is very interesting to me that you would be pointing out uh, risks in an investment yeah. and that's considered bearish. Uh, you yeah. know, it's like you, know, you need to really analyze that risk and understand it. In fact, right. for me and my investors, I believe that we are in a much better position because we know and can articulate the risk, like I said, it, it, we're not just putting blindfolds on and saying, running into a minefield saying there's no mines. You know, we're actually identifying where the mines are and then we're trying to walk around them so we don't get blown up. And mm -hmm. I think that's a logical thing. So please don't interpret this conversation as we're saying, you know, the sky is falling and everything's going down because we're identifying real risks and uh, we've seen within our industry large players and a lot of new money that are overlaying the way that they're doing deals even more risk mm -hmm. and that will extrapolate or uh, that, that will exaggerate uh, the repercussions of what we believe as others is coming and let me show you so uh, first thing that we kind of walk through on this is do you want to go ahead and read your tweet and just what you said so everybody listening yeah can yeah why don't i kind of so the self-storage bubble is bursting um i haven't seen anyone addressing the risk i thought it was due to self-interest wanting to keep the industry booming now i realize they don't know so we'll look into what's happening and why so they can understand the risk the first thing that we're moving into here is the big exaggeration and context to me is everything it's not like, I think we hear things and we accept thesis, investing thesis or certain realities without understanding why or how we came to those thesis. So understanding the root cause of narrative is very, very important to me. And in self-storage, there's a huge narrative of how it's, well, as a lot of people say, recession-proof, which everyone in our firm jokes around. That's a trigger word for me mm -hmm. because <laughs> I hear it and I'm like, uh, and the reason, triggered. <laughs> exactly. I'm triggered because, uh, that just seems a, a very foolish thing to say. And I think the reason why I have that reaction is I never want anyone within our organization to believe narratives like that, that puts my money, our money, our investors money all at risk. The moment we start having thoughts like that. And this is a mainstream conversation that self-storage is just really, really recession resistance. And that came from the performance in 2008. And in 2008, uh, the numbers are amazing on self-storage, really are. It was the lowest defaulting asset. It had the highest occupancy and it performed the best through all other commercial real estate assets. Now, the question is, for me, why, right? So w w instead of just accepting that, oh, it's because it's a great asset and people never stop using it, uh, there's a lot more that goes into that. Now, one of the reasons this narrative is so strong, because a huge majority of the people that are in industry in the industry now did not go through that recession. They mm -hmm. weren't there. We were. 
And we picked up a lot of assets that went under, went bankrupt. We saw the contraction in revenue. But the reason why it was not as adversely affected as much as other commercial real estate assets were, were, you know, at the time in 2008, we have to remember that self-storage had not been institutionalized. And the financing part of our industry was very, very weak. Banks couldn't underwrite it well. There was a lot of perceived risk. So a lot of self-storage were simply landholds, right? They had no debt. And if they did have debt, it was very small. There was just not a lot of debt to income or debt to equity. One of the biggest causers of the financial crisis was debt. Now, all other commercial real estate assets up into that point had been loaded on on debt because what people were doing is that values, they were refinancing, they were putting short-term interest in, they were pulling out as much debt as they could and putting it back to work. You really couldn't get aggressive with debt on self-storage. So that left it in an extraordinarily good place. Now, aside from debt, during the 90s, the United States boomed and real estate really boomed. And in the early 2000s, real estate really boomed. You know, that gave way to rich dad, poor dad. That gave way to this whole idea of your house as an asset and you can get rich off of buying and selling homes. Well, this was uh, really fueled by development cycles through the late 2000s of things like consumer spending, retail, right? All these other commercial real estate assets had very big development cycles, meaning they were putting lots of new inventory out. They could get financing, easy financing, to go out and develop and build and put new inventory on the market. So storage didn't have that. So it was really constrained on its ability to put finance or to put new product right out on the market. So when 2008 happened, it was in the perfect position, low debt, and not a huge amount of new supply relative to demand that allowed it to survive really well. Also, it happened to be that it was a housing crisis and lots of people started to move or downsize. This though, gave a huge narrative that if it would happen again today, it would be the same thing as 2008, which that could not be further from the truth. Not at all. Um, as we can see, and as we know, during after 2008, institutional money came in. So institutional money couldn't come in because there was no institutional third party management companies, right? There was no one to operate it. So if I'm a big fund, or I'm an investment bank, or private equity, you know, whatever I may be, I'm trying to allocate capital into a real estate industry. I'm not going to go buy a self storage facility and then go down there in my suit and try to figure out how to run it. Right? I'm not, that's not happening. So they didn't have a way to really place capital efficiently, especially when it, a lot of these huge money managers, they really needed institutionalized operators. They needed publicly traded ones. There needed to be accountability to shareholders and they needed disclosures. There was a lot of things that held capital back, but extra space moved in. They started third-party management at an institutional level as we know it today, and a lot of other companies followed. Banking could now underwrite the, this asset and they could test it through 2008, which showed them results. They could do risk-adjusted returns, right? The underwriting process on the financing side also changed. 
these two things let that capital that had been held back roll into it. But that compounded through the real estate crisis because of the narratives, how well it survived, and also the fact that so many other real estate assets had been hurt, people were gun shy from them. Now there was this brand new self-storage facility that people could put their money into and it had a great track record. So they moved it out of other real estate asset classes, put it into there. Now this drew drove this um, massive cycle as we can see here. From that point on, really after 2011, we saw cap rates compress and prices rise what has now been consistently for 10 straight years. As price per square foot rise and cap rates compress, that makes people a lot of money, right? I'm gonna show an example and we're gonna go through the numbers here. But the, num the amount of money that you can receive by increasing revenue and a cap rate going from an eight to a four staggering, right? It is like, home run, you're hitting the lottery. So while this is happening, all these people are making money, this drove developers in because I can build at a really low price per square foot, but then I can sell it at a uh, really low cap rate. And the spread to the developer is massive. So mm -hmm. what happened? That moves us on to the development cycle. And you can see 2012, cap rate started to drop. Right, Three years later, as cap rates dropped, what happened? Development money in 2015 started to pour in and self-storage went through a development cycle unlike anything it had ever been through. The industry has never seen uh, this much development. In fact, prior to 2015, I think it was something like $1.1 billion had been the most developed ever in a year. After that, we're hitting $4 billion like every year, right? It was astronomical. Um, and to put that into context, look at this chart, 1993 to 2018. Once again, the highest ever being, you know, in that 1.3 range that was fairly consistent at the beginning of the 2000s. After 2015, we have really never seen a year that has been not only under 2 billion, but it has never increased by a billion all the way to 5 billion a year. So we're talking five times the development almost by 2018 than the next highest year ever. Um, that is a lot of development and a lot of new supply that was triggered from this uh, drop in cap rates, institutionalized and consolidation of the asset. Now this led to the next thing. This led to operators and the capital coming in being way more specific. Now, because we know that in the institutional money and everything couldn't come in prior to 2008, that created an industry that was full of mom and pops because institutional players couldn't get in. And so lots and lots of these storage facilities um, were owned by single operators that were doing landholds or a little cash flow. They didn't put any, though, technology. There wasn't a whole lot of effort put into these things at all. They weren't optimized. They weren't ran, run well. This led a lot of firms like ours 
to come in and start buying them up, rolling them up, consolidating, using technology, and focusing on improving yields in those assets. And operators started to look a lot more like hotels. They started doing things like dynamic pricing. And we started to then see revenue being really driven as we saw uh, demand drive, because after 2008, we saw interest rates hit to nothing and housing prices were really low. So housing started to change hands and occupancies rose. But something happened in this process. And when we get into after 2015, 16, 17, prices that were skyrocketing, we started to see a complete change at this point in the buyers. And the change in the buyers of the assets, new money was looking over at this huge runway of these self-storage operators making all this money. And these money managers, private equity, they stopped doing all the things that they'd been doing and say, we're going to go all in this because this is a heyday. So we saw a transfer from REITs, large storage operators, institutional outside money and private equity money came in and by 2017 dominated the acquisitions. Most of these people that were coming into it had never been in self-storage before. And a lot of these operators um, that we see today have only ever been in the game for four years, maybe. During that time that these operators have been in, they've never seen occupancies not rise, revenue not rise. Um, they've never seen cap rates go up. It's only dropped, meaning they did nothing and they were making money hand over fist. And uh, this is a self-reinforcing thing. And that's led to a lot of what we see today, which is properties that are selling in, we just looked at one in Albuquerque, New Mexico at a two cap on Proforma. So they're selling for 13 million. And if you took a four cap at their actuals today, that property is worth maybe 8 million. And they're, they're trying to sell for 13, of which, you know, I, I don't know now, which we're going to talk to because the bubble's starting to burst. But four months ago, they would have gotten it all day long, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is, is boggling. So now when we're looking at the forecast and the numbers, we see a few things start to happen. Because this was all happening, and remember we're talking all the way up to 2018, we started to see things in the industry happening at this time. We're going to conferences, we're meeting with people, operators like in Dallas, and they were like, we have products sitting empty, developers aren't filling up, and it was starting to happen. We were Revenues were starting to drop, right? Occupancy, uh, vacancies were starting to rise right in 2019. And all the forecasts and everything showed, as we were predicting as well, we were now at the top end of the cycle. So the chart that we're looking at right now shows that effect and that crossover of new properties, net rentable square, uh, square feet, how they're coming in and, and how that's going to flow out. Well, 2019 was that breaking point when things started to change. But the greatest gift to self-storage came and no one expected it. And that was COVID. And when COVID came right at this inflection point 
here in 2019, right when the oversupplied markets and the hype was starting to crack and properties were not being able to be sustained, um, COVID changed everything. So I have a chart here that we're looking at that we want to go over. And this was occupancy um, of storage facilities and the first quarter of 2000, right after we saw, you know, the first started to drop, they shot up. So our of overall of 20, yeah, right after 2019, second quarter is the change. And the first, first, second quarter of 2022, we saw the change and rent and occupancies went straight to the moon, right? It, it, it was shocking at the turn. It is crazy. You can see that. I mean, right, right boom. after quarter two, it just, just boom straight up. Yeah, this was not expected, obviously. And what happened was when COVID came in, everybody left the office, went home. We went into a recession, but nobody lost money. Right? They were giving people their salaries plus handing out checks. Everybody was sitting around home. So what happened? Businesses couldn't go to work. So they had to operate remotely because people worked remotely, but their salary wasn't affected and interest rates drove to a whole new uh, low. The housing market boomed and people started buying, moving. I could move to another place, still hold my job. So all the downsides with moving started to really go away. People had time on their hands. They started buying toys, RVs, like we've never seen in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this fueled self-storage. Other assets in this same period of time, though, once again, just like 2008, were smashed. So those investors also started to roll even more. I saw a lot of multifamily owners in the space that said the government wouldn't allow us to collect rent that brought a whole new scare to us. We're out of this. We're going to go into a environment that is not as much regulated and that's self-storage. So once again, we saw people uh, start to pour in even more to self-storage. Now, it's important to understand though, the reason rents and occupants were driving. As you can see here, 44% of self-storage tenants is from renting. And in 2000, thousand which we show here the difference between 2019 and 2020 revenue uh revenue for self-storage and the number of houses sold in thousands those things are directly correlated so as number of houses sold in the united states rise the revenue of self-storage rises which is obvious 43 percent occupancies rise as occupancies rise we increase rents in self-storage hand in hand the housing market and self storage are very much linked, very, very much. Um, so when you start to go down and see all of this, what's going on, everybody starts, starts to feel, wow, we are in a bubble as far as valuations and expectations go. Now, let's clear some stuff up at this point before we get into what I think is the real effect. And we're also gonna talk about the trigger or the tipping point. The real driver of all of this, the trigger that is popping the bubble, right, has less to do with self-storage and more to do with the people that are buying it. This new flood of money that came in and we're trying to capitalize on self-storage, we saw a massive change in the way that people did deals. They started doing deals like they did in apartments 
which means they were justifying high prices and they were doing this through what I call event-based investing, meaning we are going to underwrite with a big sell in four years and then the, um, the return from the sell, we're going to take back and extrapolate over the years. Therefore, even if we bought it today, as far as cash flow, everything else goes, we're not going to make a big return, if any, and we're not going to make a lot of money. Some of these deals couldn't even pay for their own debt. So we'll do interest only. And then at the end of these four years, we're going to sell at this low four cap. And that's going to be the windfall or return that we make. Now, the problem with that is, like I point out in the thread, that your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you're going to get there and this could easily be a bomb. Because if things change, meaning they don't go straight up and your four cap is now a five cap and occupancy isn't at what it is, but all it does is return to a historical norm. Things go back to a normal state of being. These deals are so underwater. Mm -hmm. So the bubble that we see is all of these big funds that have an event in which the deal makes sense and works. Without it, everything doesn't work. And that event really is predicated on numbers that are absolutely unreasonable and unprecedented for our industry. The tipping point of this all, and that, by the way, that worked amazingly for the last 10 years. So they saw people doing this, and as cap rates lowered every single year, right, they just got richer and richer. Well, it's kind of like that uh, comparison you were making before where you're talking about people uh, just assuming there's no landmines. And that's a perfect yeah. example because you're like, well, there's no landmines on that part of the, the, past. the beach mm -hmm. or whatever, but and so there's not going to be any in front forward. of us. Yeah, yeah. 100%. The question is, then people ask, well, what? okay, if you're saying it's going to be different, why? Right? And, and so this is the question that I'm walking. Why would the future, like you're saying, be different than the past? And the trigger to this and the thing that we've been talking about when I've talked to everyone on this podcast about inflation and what does inflation bring, rising interest rates, and this whole thread that I'm doing, this video right now, is accumulation of what we've been talking about for a year. Because the needle that pops the housing bubble is interest rates. So let's take a look. Interest rates and self-storage cap rates are also perfectly aligned. In 2008, was, you know, we had an inflection point in which the overall um, uh, spread changed. So we're looking at the 10-year interest rate right now and the average self-storage cap rate. And you can see, as one goes down, the other goes down with it. Meaning, as um, the interest rates get cheaper, cap rates get cheaper, therefore purely increasing value by nothing more than the ability to buy more because of cheaper money. This is a, so if you look at this chart from 2000 to 2019, if you did nothing but held the asset, revenue never changed at all, you basically more than doubled your money. Like, or excuse me, like the value of the asset. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing, right. nothing at all. So you could triple or quadruple your money. This is a bailout for poor operators. This is a bailout for people that aren't running good businesses. The market is making them. 
But as we can see with interest rates and how interest rates change things, once again, the only time that this inversed, right, 2006, 7, and 8, all of a sudden for the first time, the spread went negative and it actually changed and dropped. Then after 2008, that changed, went back up, and we haven't seen that until now. What is happening is the interest rate bubble is two sides. Interest rates rise, cap rates rise. But more importantly, interest rates rise, we also have a slowdown in housing. Remember, 44% of our occupancy and housing and self-storage is directly aligned. I don't mean, so the debt structure on housing though is really good for most buyers meaning they're not going to lose their houses because they're locked in for 30 years at super low interest rates and most of them don't have adjustable arms. Uh, so they actually don't have a bomb waiting for them. They're fine. But for new homeowners at these prices, you know, interest rates rising two points makes things unaffordable. So what happens? They don't move. This creates stagflation. We have interest or inflation and we have a stagnant like housing market. So the housing market turns more into stagflation that stops homes from selling, people from moving. We see our overall occupancy get hit, right? Directly correlated. It's not rocket science on that. Um, and then that causes what I don't believe will be self-storage falling apart. I don't believe it's going to be at all in any way, shape, or form like going under. But lots of storage facilities will go under just because of the structure that was placed on them. You're taking an asset that was perfectly perfectly good, you put a structure that is unreasonable and expectations that will never play out. And if this asset, self-storage, returns just to historical norms, that's it, we don't need anything more. Historical norms, we're gonna be in trouble. So look at this. We can see the number of new houses sold in the United States, states and self-storage space. It's interesting because you can see how much in 2017 and 18, we had the new number of houses sold in the United States really jumped from previously that time. Now that didn't affect self-storage until about halfway through, right? Because obviously it's a, you know, self-storage is trailing the housing market as it goes. In 2020, we saw a massive jump in the number of houses sold in the United States. What's happened right now and the first part of last year, we have record revenues in self-storage. This spring will be our record revenue increase in this asset class. That's because of this right here in 2020, we had a massive jump in the overall number of houses sold in the United States. They follow each other, interest rates and it effect, its effect. If you look at the self-storage performance, and I apologize on this chart, it says 2013 to 22, but if you look down at the chart, what we're really looking at is from 2013 to 26. Um, they are predicting after 2022, uh, it drops off and we actually see performance go into the negative for the first time recorded after 2013. Why? They are, like we are, expecting interest rates to have a negative correlation and return self-storage back to more of a norm. This cooling off, this inflection point of um, the asset class is going to hit a lot of these firms really, really hard. 
So let's walk through an example, everyone. I want to show all these things we're talking about, how this plays out in numbers now. Um, you have a storage facility that's gross revenue is 170000 That's a net income of $100,000. At a four cap, that is $2.5 million. 25% down, right? We have a $1.8 million loan when you're putting 25% down. A 10% drop in occupancy, which I'll show you the occupancy number so we can actually see the historical context of occupancy and where we're at. A 10% drop or a return to the entire norm in history of this asset class. Not cratering, nothing else, just a return to the norm. At a five cap, which is still historically outrageously low, right? Um, so this could also be inverse though. The five cap could go to a six cap. So all I'm saying is that it goes up uh, one point or from four to five or from five to six or eight, wherever that is. 10% drop in occupancy and cap rates rising by simply one. The value is 1.8 million. That's a $700,000 loss. And that is not saying anything about delinquencies rising, rent reductions, nothing. All it is, is occupancy and a cap rate rising by one. That means that this deal that you purchased is underwater. Now, these, these numbers hold true to it. it. It doesn't matter. Change it to be uh, you're buying it at a six cap and it goes to a seven cap, right? Um, those are irrelevant. What we're showing, though, is the extreme effect when you're saying, I'm going to sell something at a four or a five cap at a 95% occupancy, and then you're selling it at a six or a seven cap at 85 or 86% occupancy, right? Um, you can't sell. There's no longer any value. So if I'm doing interest only because I don't need to pay principal because I'm going to sell it, and that's what I'm giving all my investors their whole return, this event-based investing or gambling, um, which is over 90% of how all private equity companies do it at this point, because they have to, to justify the acquisition price they're buying at. If they do that, they cannot sell the property. They'll sell it at a loss. So then we have to refinance, but we're refinancing at a lower value than we bought it. So the asset itself is just performing at historical norms, but it will still go negative or lose. And this is why I say I can be bullish in the long term and bullish in assets I am uh, in self-storage, but bearish in the short term. And I also think that over the next two years, we are going to see a lot of assets that are in trouble. And we're going to see assets that will be de defaulting, even though the assets probably don't have anything significantly wrong. So let's take out, a, uh, let's look at this chart to show you the context of historical uh, occupancies and how that might look. If we look at self storage occupancy rate, we can really see that, you know, after 2015, occupancies have stayed over 90%. Um, now, that started to change around 2018, but and then after COVID, they went even higher. And we saw average occupancies really rise above 95%. But it's important to know that historically speaking, that's never occurred. So we've never maintained on average occupancies over 90% in the entire life cycle of this asset class. And in fact, you know, a huge portion of it occupancies were actually below 85%. So 
a norm of saying more of 85 to 90 percent which is actually how we based our assets on at 90 percent we believe that we were you know we were full that's not how people are buying and constructing deals right now they are everything is so overinflated and as we showed in the numbers a pullback to normal can be devastating on so many of these private equity firms that need to deliver returns to their investors we're seeing a lot of people just trying to place money. There's a lot of um, accredited investors that want to be in the game, and people are out consolidating this asset class, and they're just trying to buy everything that they can. And the the increase in overall occupancy was led directly by revenue. And since 2015, after that 90%, that made this asset class just hit you know double digit revenue increases year over year. So in summary, I need to really break this down so everybody understands. First of all, people are like, wow, I'm not going to buy self-storage anymore, right? <laughs> it's, it's over. It's done. Uh, that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, we are buying. But we do not do regressive underwritings. We do not do uh, deals based upon sales, which is, I, this is something I think I was shocked by not ever being in private equity, not ever seeing people that raise funds, is just learning that that's how 90 plus percent of everyone is doing it. That's, that's what drove all these conversations. And when we're having talks with people, why we don't believe in this methodology. Mm -hmm. Because if none of this happens, so let's say that it just continues, cap rates continue at lowest in history forever, interest rates have zero effect, and occupancies ever, never even go back down to a normal rate, we still win. It's not that we don't win, right? We're still in the game. We still get all the returns, everything else like that. But if it does, we are completely set up and we're buying assets in a way that protects us from this. So we're looking at oversupplied markets because what we're talking about here is a norm. If you're in an oversupplied market, that is outrageously exaggerated. So it's not going to do a 10% pullback. It may be 15 or 20% pullback for you in an overbuilt market. We're staying away from those markets. We're looking at insulated markets at assets that's revenue is substantially below market. That is reinforcing demand that has immediate returns and our returns are predicated by something known and measurable that we can affect in the market. Not everything going up, not a liquidation event to get our returns. Now, if all of that happens, that's great. That's the cherry on top. The problem is we have to go buy off-market deals. We have to get aggressive. We have to do things that either other people don't know how to underwrite. They don't have those deals. They can't do it. So instead, they're buying at high prices and justifying it with the sell at the end. A lot of them are doing it because of fees they're trying to make. And in fact, a lot of these big firms are set up to where if they're not making fees, they can't pay bills. So if I'm not doing a storage deal and I don't get investors in it, we can't pay our salaries of this huge overhead that we now have. We're very fortunate and we can think about things like this and we can actually talk about this to other people and tell them, here's what we need to do. Here's where you need to watch out because our portfolio didn't have investors until just two years ago and our expenses are actually covered by cash flows from assets that we've owned for a long time that mm -hmm. we don't need to worry about. So. I can, we can sit here and have this conversation and I can tell anybody looking to get into the storage industry, here's where the mines are, everybody. If you're in the storage industry, here's how you need to structure deals moving forward. Here's where the risks are. Do you have a refinance coming up? 
do you have to sell to get those returns, right? What are you communicating to your investors? If you are a investor looking at getting into the self-storage game, what kind of questions are you asking those operators, right? What is their strategic plan? And what is the likelihood of that actually playing out for you, given that us, and as you've seen lots of other people, graphs and charts, I just don't believe that what we've seen in COVID will maintain. Now, I don't think that's being negative. I think that's being a realist. That's looking at the data. And we're able to protect ourselves and keep moving forward, keep finding great deals and assets. Uh, how, in just in the last month, we've had how many deals that we've gotten that have uh, fallen out of contract that people mm -hmm. are lowering, lowering those prices. So over the next two amazing years, deals too. amazing deals. Yeah. That's a bonanza actually for us. Yeah. So we get to now come and pick up rates that were already under market in high demand at a higher cap rate for us. Whew, that's a huge win. That really changes our outlook and what we're able to do. So how you structure deals, the deals that you are buying, first of all, should not be predicated on an event in the future in order to make returns survive to make it worth it. You should be buying deals that have a lot of enforced demand. It, there's not a lot of new supply on the market so that when occupancies do get hit, it's not as bad because when occupancies get hit bad, you drive down rates, which drive down revenue, and it can be a downward cycle. Protect yourself from these events. Look at the data and make your moves appropriately. Cash flow and long-term investing. And this is the greatest asset class in the world. I really believe it. There's still mom and pops everywhere. You can still get into it. I don't want to see investors putting structures on assets that are just fine, but may go to some historical norm and then they're losing them. Mm -hmm. And that disrupts our industry and that causes lots of problems for us and for everybody else. And I don't want to see a fallout of people that have this amazing opportunity to get into a real estate asset class that's incredible, but all of a sudden, because it's been overdone, right, they are getting into putting themselves into a bad spot instead of a place where they're creating wealth, income, and financial freedom. Exactly. No, you painted such a beautiful picture of how exactly all of this is working and how this differentiates from previous performance and and just like everything, right? You got all the disclaimers that, you know, previous uh, <laughs> previous performance doesn't dictate future performance, yeah, right? Of course. Um, it's such a it's it's such a beautiful thing that you've painted here for everybody to see. And I think too one of the great things that you just mentioned, everything that you just talked about, uh, what makes a good deal, what you need to be looking for that will allow people to continue to build wealth, income, freedom within self-storage. We're not changing our investment strategy, no. our thesis, our fundamentals nope. at all. This, this changes nothing. This is essentially just looking at these risks as they develop that we're already planning for and that you guys should plan for. I mean, nothing changes at all for us. Nothing. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, what's brought this on and particularly what scares me, I've never been able to hear anyone articulate or talk about the risks in self-storage. I would agree. I've never seen anybody bring it up. What seems so clear mm -hmm. to us and as we're talking about it, and that's why it's like, we really need to put this together to put it out yeah. there because there's not one voice out there. All it seems to be is cheerleaders. Well, Everybody's making money. Everybody's yeah, getting into self-storage. And that's the kind of stuff that we saw prior to OA and housing, things like that, where mm -hmm. there were no voices coming out to give a reality check to the market. And it's important that we have reasonable expectations 
expectations from these investments. Mm-hmm. We don't expect them to be something that they're not. We're not structuring them in a way. And a lot of that comes to the lack of information. So a lot of people haven't been in the game. Most of these funds, most of these, even banks getting into it, right? They're coming in now after the big run-up. They don't really understand why it's performing well. They haven't seen a history. They don't get a lot of these fundamental things. So they're not identifying risk. And that's putting them and their investors in a bad situation, which that we don't like. 100% agree. That's kind of what my thoughts were when we first started this episode out was how this is going to affect that financing aspect uh, as we move forward. And that will get tighter. So once we start to see people fall out of contract, um, and then we start to see banks pulling loans because of the valuation change due mm-hmm. to um, a market restructuring as far as cap rates, values, revenues, occupancies, right? Banks start to pull back money. Then it gets harder for people to get money to get into the business. Yep. And then people stop developing, right? And then that's what keeps the market healthy, though, because money stops keep chasing it. Yep. And it takes a few years, we return back to normal. So all things that you also have to be realized, if you're going to be getting in the game in the next three three years, your financing, what banks want to see, who's in it, right? It's these things come and go. They change. We need to be prepared for them and ready to act. 100%, dude. Love it. Have some cash ready to go. That's right. (laughs) All right, everybody. We have plenty of videos on how to do this right, adjust risk. Go back, look through them. We'll make a whole lineup, everything from financing and particularly, uh, what was it, two episodes ago? I think we made an entire video on how we structure our deal for risk. Mm-hmm. So you can go back, check that out. We'll put the number of that show in the show notes here that shows as me and Connor walked through how we're structuring deals to absorb risk in the coming future and how you should too. A fantastic episode. And if you haven't already, just leave us a quick review, one word, What doesn't matter yeah. what it is. You could say great. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Leave us a review. Leave helps us something. Us out a lot. Exactly. It helps us out a ton. Leave it here on uh, YouTube. Subscribe. All that good jazz. Let's build this channel out. Let's spread the word. Let's make sure people are educated in this industry. Because again, we don't see a ton of this information out there. This really helps the industry. Helps us. Helps you guys. And uh, let's keep this machine going. We'll Thanks, catch everybody. you guys next time.